किशोर ओ सहनावतु सहनौभुनक्तु सह वीर खरवाह तेजस्वीनाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाधीतमस्तुमाध
they repeatedly come back to this world in the cycle of birth and death. Maya tadamidam sarvam jagadavyakta murtina matsthani sarvabhutani nachaham teshvavasthitaha. Maya by me, tatam pervaded idam, this sarvam entire jagat cosmic manifestation, avyakta murtina, the unmanifested form, matsthani in me, sarvabhutani, all living beings, na, not, Cha and Aham, I, Teshu in them, Avastitaha, dwell. This entire cosmic manifestation is pervaded by me in my unmanifest form. All living beings dwell in me, but I do not dwell in them. Nacha matsthani bhutani, Pashyame yoga maishwaram, Bhuta brunnacha bhutastaha. Mamatma Bhuta Bhavanaha Na, never Cha and Matsthani abide in me, Bhutani, all living beings. Pashya, behold, may my Yoga Maishwaram, divine energy, Bhuta Brut, the Alpana, switched Bhuta Brut, the sustainer of all living beings. Na, never Cha et Bhutastaha. Dwelling in Mama, my Atma, Self, Bhuta Bhavanaha, the creator of all beings. And yet, the living beings do not abide in me. Behold the mystery of my divine energy. Although I am the creator and sustainer of all living beings, I am not influenced by them or by material nature. Thank you, Alpana. So this is what we are covering today. But before we go there, uh, you know, Rick uh, wanted to take five ten minutes to talk about uh, uh, Krishna's talk from the last week. Over to you, Rick. Okay, there. Uh, it was a wonderful delineation of uh, Mamukshu Jignasu travel, and there are two aspects of it I wanted to comment on. And the first is uh, when he mentioned that it's during Shravanam that we behold uh, our true nature. And uh, Krishna also in the discussions going on the last couple of days was mentioning how uh, perhaps reading a book, perhaps watching videos of a teacher uh, might yield the same result. I believe that, but that's not what my experience was or has been. That being said, uh, in this, these verses we just read, uh, as Swamiji discusses them, part of why this is such a great secret is because the means of knowledge that we have are not capable of seeing who we are because we are not an object to ourselves and all of our means of knowledge, the eyes, the ears, inference, presumption, even anupalapti are all based on subject object relationship. So going back to in this parampara, in this teaching sampradaya, Shabda Pramana is available. And uh, Swamiji was, Dhyananda was very insistent that this is 
the method uh, to obtain or to behold or to recognize oneself. And I'm certainly not going to dispute that. But as to the why, uh, Shabda Pramana is the words of the Upanishads, the words of the scriptures, when handled by a guru who is both Brahmanishta and Shrotriyam, he is able to use the words, wield the word, words be, in a teaching methodology, wherein the student, the student who has one, belief in the reality of this knowledge, two, acceptance that the guru has this knowledge, and three, the pramana, Shabda Pramana, is a, it works. That's a very important aspect of this. It is the surrender to the teacher. So that during the actual presentation, the unfoldment, that student who also has to believe that this knowledge is possible for oneself is able to see. Now, Swamiji said we use the word see or seeing because it represents a concrete person. We're sure of what we see. The courts might disagree, but often seeing is our most assured way of knowing. The Buddhists call it a seeing into because they want to be very clear that it's not a subject-object relationship. And as Alpana mentioned, the mind and the intellect are not up to the task. They are not. But like a flashlight, the flashlight brings light, but is the light that dispels darkness. The mind and the intellect help focus, but it is the self that recognizes the self. Only the limitless within us is able to recognize itself. The limited will never recognize the limitless. Wherever there is mitya, there is satyam, but satyam need not have mitya with it. So I don't know if, I don't know in this group, I'm rather new to this. I don't know you as many of you know each other, although I will say the daily chats help me have some understanding. But in this uh, august grouping where punya abounds, if you've been in front of Swami D or Swami P, and I have no personal experience of Swami G, but I accept that this is the same. So when the teaching takes place, and in that moment where you, the vision is seen by you as you, that's when the practice changes, obviously. Swami Dayananda would not usually talk about his own journey, but one day toward the end of the six-month course in Anakati, he made them turn the recorders off and talked about his own journey and his own exposure to pramana with Swami Tapavan. And what he said was, afterwards, it was a riot in his mind. He was his mind, his emotions were completely unwilling to accept what he had just witnessed or not witnessed, recognized. And so there was a lot of emotional fallout. This can't be me. What am I talking about? What's going to happen to all these practices I've done? Now you're telling me that none of them really matter. I don't need to pursue them. And he said something that always stuck with me and gave me great solace. 
He said, I recognized that this is going away pain. That's a beautiful way to put it. Going away because the knowledge will dissolve it. And as we continued to reflect, as he said, as he continued to reflect and read and make himself available for more teaching, the mind did calm down. And that's when we're, Krishna spoke about the three become two, the path becomes binary, the atma and atma portion of practice. It's only possible because now one has glimpsed, recognized themselves as atma, as the limitless self. Yet, from our training, from the life we've lived, everything appears to be anatma. But yet, in that moment, in that, and as we reflect on that knowledge, we recognize that everything is atma. My own ignorance is atma. My emotions are atma. As Swami Dayananda said, what is, is God. What is, that sense of is, that everything we experience, everything is, thought is, world is, mind is, that isness is myself. That isness is Atma. That isness is Brahman. Brahmas me. And Swamiji said that while one is involved in practicing that sadhana, there is a divine wind, if you will. Uh, the Buddhists would say the current that takes the raft across the ocean of samsara, which really is not anything to cross, and there is no raft, but temporarily there is. And so he said that every time you do the inquiry and every time you look at what appears to be an atma and are able to confirm that it is atma, that's one step closer to the freedom and peace that we are never away from. And Krishna in these verses does make the point, and the point is start, starts this, these verses with the fact that you don't have to go to Brahma Loka. You are Brahman now. Don't put this off. You're qualified. Do this now. And certainly the parampara that we're part of, you cannot tell me that any of these teachers tell their sincere students that you you can't get it in this lifetime. It's not available to you now. That would go against everything that they are and what they teach. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rick. Awesome. That was very good. I think this is a good lead into this chapter nine as well. So with that, uh, we go back to the usual format. Anyone can uh, share your, you know, aha moments and comments on what you read today. Let me start, Rajesh. Uh, yeah, good to be back uh, with uh, Bhagavad Gita, Chapter 9. Uh, among the first five slokas, of course, uh, the first thing that struck me was the apparent contradiction between four and five, when uh, in the fourth verse, the Lord says, everyone uh, dwells in me, and in the fifth, 
says, no one dwells in me, right? Uh, uh, so, uh, so that contradiction was very interesting, but I also heard the explanation that Swami P has, and uh, uh, that's pretty uh, profound, I would say, in way how uh, uh, Shankaracharya resolved that apparent contradiction between four and five. So, so Uday, how does he resolve it? Can he? I didn't read the. Can yeah. he just yeah for the benefit of people who do not read? Yeah. So, how Swami P explains, and uh, yeah, anybody else who has heard can please uh, add on to what I am going to say. What he says, Muku, is uh, you know, imagine you're having a dream, right? Uh, it is so real to you in the dream world right that you wake up even sometimes right uh, it might be a scary dream it might be a nightmare and you start sweating you start screaming in your dream and it's so real to you right that you wake up with the fear it, it is all real right but the same thing when in the when you have woken up right it is not real anymore but in your dream world it is as real as it can get, right? The same incident, once you have in the waking world, has no significance at all, is not real at all, right? So it is that kind of an anal analogy that uh, Swami P gives that what appears to be true, you know, may not be true, when we get into that realization of the truth, right? So that's how uh, Shankaracharya resolved. And Swami P actually prefaces it by saying, there are a number of such apparent contradictions in Bhagavad Gita, when you take you know, the exact uh, transliteration of words, uh, between one shloka and the other. There are several such contradictions, but this one is very, very blatant in the sense it comes right after one another, right? So sometimes you read a shloka in one chapter and then in the subsequent chapter later on, it is a contradiction or an apparent contradiction, right? That, uh, that time you might have even forgotten what you read, but this one is like, you know, right next to each other in one, uh, you know, uh, Bhagavan says, uh, everyone dwells in me and in the very next one he says no one dwells in me right so uh, uh, that that is how swami p explains this uh, Muko. got it thank you thank you yeah anyone else has uh, heard uh, swami p's uh, bashi on this okay cool Uday, I I feel that between what what you said, um, instead of dwelling word, maybe uh, I'm not getting an English word for that, but I'm going to see what he says here. I think most mostly it is it's not situated. So so how I'm thinking is that the mind, like we probably in our mind are thinking about. Krishna, let's say, 
but he's not thinking he he doesn't have a mind like he he's beyond that so we are situated but he's not situated i think that's what i perceive but maybe you know yeah so i i'll just read the exact words i caught the word dwell on that slide but uh, what uh, in uh, swami c's book uh, chinmayananda's uh, book the translation is in the fourth uh, verse the second line it says all beings exist in me but i do not dwell in them okay that is the okay that's fine right all beings exist in me it says right in the fifth verse it says nor do beings exist in me okay the first line of the fifth one says nor do beings exist in me so that was the contradiction they uh, talk about okay yeah in english it becomes controversy yeah. but yes yes perhaps you are right okay. maybe the uh yeah the, it is also the interpretation that is causing the apparent contradiction with the Okay. If I can add here too, uh, uh, Swami Dayananda would talk talked about this as well, and part of what he said was uh, there's another portion. I don't know the exact verse where Krishna says, "I am all things, but no thing contains me." When we practice neti neti, not this, not this, it's important to know what we're not to help not only discover who we are. but to have certainty about who we are. So in Krishna saying he is all things, of course the word is everything, but no thing can contain the word. No individual aspect of creation can limit the word. That's again the neti neti ends with an understanding that I am all things. And I think that's the same type of understanding that's occurring here. Also there are many contradictions and paradoxes in both the physical universe and as psychological beings. Like we are happy and we are sad, but which one is real? Well, who who runs toward unhappiness, but yet everyone seeks happiness? Who gives condolences to somebody when they're happy and congratulates them when they're sad? So these paradoxes are are understood with knowledge. I think that's the same point here. There are paradoxes. They are not solved through experience. They're solved through understanding. Go ahead, Shrini. unmute yourself sri sorry sorry my understanding is god being the nimitta karanam and the upadarana karanam so uh, coming to the analogy of the pot and the clay so uh, he says i am in the pot but the pot is not in me so which means that god is the nimitta karanam and the upadarana karanam so which means that the pot is the karyam so which means that if you take the cause and effect relationship uh, <clears throat> the cause can be a part of the effect but the effect cannot be the cause so that is why he says i am in the pot but the pot is not in me uh, i mean that is one one way of you know putting it 
which means that the karyam uh, cannot become the karanam but karanam can become a part of the karyam sorry i am i am you know using tamil because uh, i could understand this better uh, you know when they use the words nimitta karanam and upadara karanam and karanam karyam being the cause and the effect so which means that uh, when he says uh, you know uh, i am i am i am part of the uh, you know karyam but i am not the karanam which means that uh, Uh, the effect cannot be a part of the cause so that is why he says i am in the pot but the pot is not in me so uh, which means that he is inside everyone uh, which means that once it becomes a thing when the when the subject becomes the object uh, you know which we are all uh, seeing the object so maybe he is not part of the object but he is referring from the uh, you know subject angle and seeing and saying that he is he is in the pot and the pot is not in me so uh, this is what is the simple uh, you know analogy i took uh, to understand this and in fact uh, the reason swami p lecture was very very uh, very very interesting he says i am the nimitta karanam and i am the upadara karanam you know which means that uh, uh, i i am i am in everything so when when you see a pot uh, you should actually see me so the pot is god as a name and a form but actually what is there is me so uh, in fact we have to develop this uh, you know shraddha that whatever we see is god so whatever we see is ishwara so if we if we can create that change in mindset then i think uh, you know we are one step towards our destination or goal uh, is is my take so anybody can uh, you know uh, support me or help me understand this better thanks no well said uh, shrini actually i recall a conversation that i had with a client it was over a dinner okay and uh, and somehow it got into whether the unfortunately or fortunately for him i do not know what 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 is the reality of it so um, so uh, what what uh, you know what my my thesis to him at that time was because i did not know what was his uh, quote unquote uh, his background or whatever my thesis to him was that uh, you know when you look at a tree for example and, and there was a tree uh, next to where we were sitting and i said when you look at this tree uh, you you're calling it as a tree today but what was it before i asked him that question and then he said oh it, it was a small uh, plant okay what was it before it was a small plant he said it was a sapling so what was it before it was a sap it was it, it, it was a seed okay so what was it before it was a seed okay then we just uh, stopped there because that was getting it a little bit more complex but then they said okay let's say that we the seed was there and then the seed became a sapling sapling became a plant plant became a tree and the tree now you, uh, when you start looking at the tree you start seeing divisions within the tree which is you see branches you see you see the stem you see the branches and then you see the leaves you see twigs you see bark you see a lot of things okay so the question is what has come up in the whole process uh, i asked the question to him he said yeah i can see all the all those things all those things exist but the point point i was trying to make to him was that okay you say that they are they exist in the tree but we just now agreed that before the tree it was a plant it was a, before the plant was sapling before the sapling it was a seed therefore all these things are sort of uh, overimposed by names and forms because you see a form and you called it by a name you see something green in the shape of a uh, common parlance what we know as leaf therefore you call it as leaf and you see something like a big uh, stem therefore you call it as a stem because that's how we commonly understand what it is but all of them are actually 
just names and forms of something that you don't know what was there before, which was basically, it was just a seed. And everything else is just name and form over a period of time that you started calling using, you know, common parallels. So then my argument to him was that uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, think about it, the entire universe, whatever that we see here is just names and forms. There is a name associated to a form. The name and form always, always go together. If you can't, if you can't name something, then it is, then probably the form doesn't exist. Okay. So I think he, he sort of got it. And why I'm saying this, the why I'm saying this is that in this context, if you, even if you look at our common experience today, I don't think that we can call anything by a name or a form. When I say name, it need not be verbalized. In your mind, there's a conception of what that particular thing is. And that thing can happen only when you have an idea about it. Therefore, you know, everything right from day zero, you know, if you take Big Bang or whatever that you take it or the start of the creation, everything has started evolving with names and forms. And going back to what Srini was saying, you know, if, if we can't see the part, if you, if, you can, if you can't see the mud in the pot, you can see the pot because it's much more visible. Therefore, you called it as pot one. And then you called it a thick pot or a small thin pot or whatever that you called it by different names. Pot for water, pot for milk, pot for oil or whatever that you call it. And you, you have that in, in your name. But you don't see that all these pots are basically made out of the same constituent material, which is the, which is the mud. Therefore, you know, we make the we make the mis we make the mistake that okay, uh, because we can transact in the real world that okay, I can use this this uh, uh, laptop for this particular purpose, and other person also understands it. We completely forgot what that underlying material, uh, the core material of those uh, names and forms are, and and that's the uh, uh, the path what Vedanta takes you in, saying that it's not that these names and forms are. Uh, quote unquote not existent. They they exist for physical reality, but when you start going deeper and deeper into it, they actually don't exist. Correct. Understand. Actually, you should trick the mind you know, to see beyond the name and form. I think that is where the catch is. So how to do it like independent uh, people can have their own uh, way to do it. But I think when you see something, you should immediately realize that it is not the name and form, but it is something beyond that. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that maybe it's a practice or you know you need to create a trick inside yourself to to get this uh, you know uh, situation or to get this into your mind so i think basically the mind is what is creating the name and form because we are all used to this name and form how to trick the mind and get out of this name and form is i think one form of uh, you know uh, vedantic study which we need to do or practice yes. so that whatever we see we see we see the basics rather than you know seeing the finish yeah, I think that is that is that is where we need to lead to. Yeah, and I, I know we got Alpana and Ajay raised the hands, but I just want to conclude with one one other thing in the same context here, right? So two weeks back, I also led a meditation session in a conference uh, where I was telling people about uh, looking at unity in the entire diversity, right? And what I did was that, and these are all people, you know, I don't even know who they are. They're you know, from diverse nationalities. There were about eighty people who attended my session. And uh, uh, I, I have no idea who they are. You know, later on, many people connected with me on LinkedIn and they said, thank you and all that stuff. So uh, here is what, what I did. The technique, what I did with them was that I said, let's use food as an example. And then let's understand 
how the food and we are not different. Okay, and the entire universe is not different. So what I what I said was that I asked them to start focusing on um, what was there in the plate in the last meal, what they ate, and I said. Till the time you ate the particular food, it was different from you. But after you ate it, the food became you. Okay, and then I said, therefore, you are just nothing but a modification of the food what you what you've eaten over a period of time. Then I said, now you step back and move move away and look into the food chain of what you last ate. Then I started taking them away from the plate of uh, the meal plate what they just ate to what constituted the particular food. And then I said, they moved slowly, saying that the food came from. Uh, uh, animal or a plant, because uh, you know obviously the people we don't know what what they would have eaten, and then they said the the food has come from animal or a plant, and then even the food for the animal has come from the plant. Then they said all all the food comes from plant. Then they said let's not stop there. Let's go and ask what came from the what what made the what was the raw material that the plant used to make the food. Then I led them into the panchabuta. I said the sunlight, air, water. Earth and space. These were the five things that constituted the food, which got transformed over a period of time that you ended up eating like an apple. And then, then I said, okay, you know, then then you have to see that you know you are no different than these five five basic elements. Therefore, if you want to have harmony with nature, then you need to, you know, figure out a way of living in harmony with yourself and with with the nature by you know by not damaging the nature as much as what you would not like to damage your own body. And that sort of you know resonated with people, and then you know I, I sort of concluded by saying that all these things they they may look different, but they are actually not different. Uh, but when you really really look at it, and then you can actually draw the line saying that okay, this body and mind are not actually part of you; they are part of the universe, and then you are different than the universe. So I think people liked it, and I I know that it was a little hard, heavy hitting to someone who doesn't understand Vedanta, but to take something practical and you know. Delayer out the name and form is very very useful for a lot of people. I would say. Excellent, excellent, Rajesh. Yeah. Super. Alpana. Um. I think I've lost my chain of thoughts, but I'll just attempt uh, uh, what I was trying to say. Um. One was, uh, I think, uh, the part that Trini covered was more of that I am not in them, they are in me. So I think the contradiction is then later he says they are also not in me. So that's the contradiction which I think uh, Uday was referring to. So the first part, yes, is absolutely right. The cause cannot be in the effect and effect uh, is in the cause. So that part is uh, that part is uh, um, is clear, I think what Srini was saying. Um, what I was trying to say was, uh, even if you take a cause and effect, um, when he said, I am in everything, so it is like mud, which is in all the pots. But even if you put together all the pots, there is still some mud left, which is not in pots. So hence, cause, even though it is pervading all the effects, it is still not in them because not all of the mud can be converted into pots. So that's the argument which is given that uh, uh, the even though the cause is in the effect, but not all cause is in the effect and hence he is not in effect. So that's one argument. Then the second side was when he said they're not in me, if we 
the way Swami C was trying to explain was that thing that pervades is very subtle. So anything that can pervade needs to be subtler than what it is pervading. So if you take an example of space, space can pervade everything, but so, so everything exists in space, you can say, because space is pervading everything. But everything doesn't exist in space in the sense anything that happens to the effect does not impact the space. So if you, if you extrapolate that, because Brahman is even more subtler than the space. So if you abstract out Brahman, Brahman is the substratum. So like without the waker, dream cannot exist. Similarly, without Brahman, anything that is projected also cannot exist. So even though it's perceived to be existing in Brahman, but it is not in Brahman. If something exists in another thing, the property of what's inside should impact what is the container. But it, it's not in this particular case. And hence, the con the seemingly contradictory statement that everything does not exist in me is from the fact that anything that is appearing to be existing in me is not impacting me. So, so that's why the two things are separate. And even though they may appear paradoxical statements, but they're true because nothing can exist without Brahman because Brahman is the substratum. At the same time, it is not impacted by whatever is existing and hence it doesn't exist in me. So that's the that's the explanation of these two paradoxical statements. And just one more point, uh, which uh, Srini was saying, how do you trick the mind? Actually, the mind is also projected. So okay. what you are is, it's still an instrument. And the instrument, which is the experiencer and the experienced, both are projected, both are in Maya. So don't try to go to the mind. The moment you start analyzing contents, you're away from Brahman. Because the content and the perceiver of the content, both are content only. So don't try to trick the mind. You just have to say that mind is also on the other side. It's not on my side. The moment you start distancing yourself from the mind, you will grasp it. And what grasps is the self, actually. So it grasps. All these words are, uh, you can't use any word to, to as, as uh, Rick was struggling as well, whether it is revealed or it is, uh, because the self will know itself without any instrument. That's why that's the only direct perception we will ever have. Even though we say, oh, I see this thing. So this is directly perceptible to me, but it is not. It is coming through the eyes. So the eyes are the instrument that are being used. The only direct perception that is ever possible is of the self by the self. And that remains. So I just wanted to touch upon that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Alpana. Beautiful, Alpana. Thank you so much for that. Excellent. Ajay. No, thanks, Alpana. I, I was, uh, my chain of thoughts was somewhat similar or very similar to what you described. I probably kind of say it in my sort of the way I understood it. I think the first step is that you, you know, I'm all per pervasive as in Brahman. 
uh, and that uh, you are in me, right? And I think the the analogy that sort of stuck in my head was that Brahman being all pervasive is infinite, whereas we are all finite beings. And finite can be in infinite, but infinite cannot be infinite. Right. I think this is pretty much what you said, Alpna. So I'm just paraphrasing, but this is how I kind of reconciled in my head. Uh, the second part is around the fact that, you know, when he says you are in me, and then he goes, you are not in me. And I think the way I kind of uh, rationalized in my mind is that <clears throat> I think he's really talking about the whole concept of mithya, wherein, you know, we do not have an independent existence other than Brahman, right? And so while, uh, so, you know, A, A depends on B, sorry, A, 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 sorry, I'm going to re rephrase it. Uh, B doesn't exist without A, right? And the whole concept of Mithya, where we look at it from a absolute versus uh, 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 relative reality, on a relative basis, yes, we exist, which is the second uh, step. But on an absolute basis, nothing exists, right? So I think the way I think about it is that when you say absolute, it's really to, to say that uh, we do not have any independent existence without A, and therefore B doesn't exist actually, right? So I think that's how I kind of reconcile it. So it's a finite versus infinite and uh, uh, and uh, independent versus dependent existence. Ajay, one correction. You cannot say that B does not exist because we experience it in some fashion or the other. So it it has an apparent existence. I don't think we can, exactly. we can no, deny no, it that it does not exist. No, I, didn't, I didn't mean it didn't exist. I'm trying to kind of uh, explain the third step where it exists in a... In a, it doesn't exist on an absolute basis, but yeah. it does exist in a relative basis. Correct. Right? It, it exists in a form, yeah, words and forms. And, Correct. Know. But so Rajit, I, I, yeah, Rajit, I'll argue, argue into that dream is very existent in the dream. When you wake up, it doesn't exist. Exactly. I think that the dream example is a, is a fantastic one because we experience it live and we, we know exactly what that means. That once we come out Dan of the dream... Ish. For sure that this world exists, even apparently no. Correct. No, so I, no, I agree. Dream. What I'm saying is that uh, my my point was that uh, the uh, during the time of the dream, the dream exists. Yeah. Okay. So when 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 we are living in this world, and let's say that this is a long dream, a dream which is made of few billions of years that we are going through, because we are you know taking births and deaths and all that stuff. During that period, that this world exists and it is real, apparently. Till such time, the person who is a dreamer, quote unquote, you know, people who are in this life, who will be born again, who will be born again, who will be born again, for them, this world exists. Correct, but ultimately it does not. I mean, after you've kind of woken up from the dream of yeah, the million, so ultimately like, it doesn't, right? Yeah, it doesn't. That's, that's the point. The point is that the point is. When the for the person who's made the switch, okay, this does not exist. But for the person who does not this has not made the switch, this world exists. So what no, I'm trying to say is that the snake hmm. never existed, right? 
even when you are seeing the stink is not there yeah exactly exactly it's it's it's, the, it's it's like the dream the dream was there as long as you were in the dream but the moment you came out of the dream it didn't exist the, the you know life okay. the life and death continues for millions of of iterations it exists while we are in samsara but the moment right. we come out of samsara it is irrelevant it just is a it's just a dream right true yeah so this is uh, sorry this is what is the basic difference between uh, advaitam and uh, visistha advaitam so in the visistha advaitam the world actually exists so what rajesh just now said is is what is visistha advaitam says and what is ramarajam preaching but in advaitam nothing exists so once you realize that nothing exists it is only a dream world so how do you realize you know as a, for example in the dream world you have a different state you are in a dream you wake up and then you see that the that the world was a dream what you what you dreamt was dream, dream. but being in this dream world and then realizing is what you need to do you are how to realize when you are dreaming how to realize that it is a dream it never happens only when you come to the waking state you know that it is a dream but very unfortunately in the waking state now we don't have another state to understand that you know this is a this is a dream after all there is there so, is another state we haven't reached that state yet yes exactly <laughs> so 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 uh, so that is where that is where the crux is so what rajesh was just now saying is my understanding is it is visistha advaitam where they say the world exists god created the world the world exists but god is god is there no god is there and what you got to do is go and attain god and then get out of this world so there is a physical world which exists that is what is the entire vaishnavism saying under ramanujam's teaching sir but just just to pick on sir, what you said shrini uh, just just yes. just just to pick on that you know the in a way sort of there are three steps we said right you exist in me i don't exist in you and then the third one is you don't exist in me either right and it feels like vashishta dvaita stops at two yes, it feels like exactly it. Right? yes and yes. and and one of the questions and while you were speaking i was thinking about it because i was thinking to myself how does with these three statements which are paradoxical how does vishishta advaita explain step 3 which is you don't exist in me right and that that might be a be a philosophical or a different you know off topics so we don't need to get into it but it feels like vishishta advaita is saying earlier well, stops at two whereas mm-hmm. actually in the dvaita we're saying that well nothing exists rather than from rest of it is all a figment of imagination or whatever you call it that's why i posted that today yesterday the snake the snake becomes the brahman the snake becomes the rope after the switch is made so i hope you you guys you guys not yeah, notice yeah, yeah. that the snake become, becomes the uh, rope it's not that's that's what dishtadaita says correct whereas whereas advaita would say that there is no there is no snake there is no snake yeah yeah exactly no and and ultimately you know uh, swami uh, i think swami swami sarvapriyananda says spg that even the rope itself doesn't exist that is the later uh, no no final state that's right. <laughs> yeah that's that's another level yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> all right lots of hands raised uh, ajay <laughs> are, are, you, are you done or are you comp- completing your thought no I, I, no i i think i'll stop here there are other thoughts but i'll come to it later Okay, I'll go in the order that I noticed. So it's Manu, it's you. Hi, thanks, Rajesh. Um, I was just sort of stuck on an earlier point, 
um, trying to understand how the the mud pot example um, explains uh, you know, verse four. I'm still not, I mean, I, I understand the first part where it, it says all this world is pervaded by me in my unmanifest form. So that pervading concept, I understand with the mud pot example. But the second part, does it does the mud pot example explain the second part of all beings exist in me and I don't dwell in them? Because I, that part is like, I'm not getting it. So when it says I'm not uh, in them, because when, when you say something is inside something, in entirety, it needs to be inside something then we say it exists in something. But if you take the example of mud and pot, if you even if you combine all the pots of the world, not entire mud will be in it. And hence, he's using the phrase that I do not exist in that. Okay. okay. It's more of when we say I mean, something is inside something, we say it, it's in entirety, but okay. it's not the case here. So okay. that's the second Understood. Okay, thanks, Alpna. I mean, the wave in the water is another good example, uh, Manu. Yeah. The waves are are finite. The water is infinite. Yeah, yeah, that part I understand. I just I I felt like didn't understand how. I mean, I understand that all the paths exist, you know, uh, because of the mud, right? Or all the waves exist because of the water. But what does it mean that the water does like? the water is not in that 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 part i was not getting but i guess it's it's not yeah. all of the water is not in them or all of the mud is not in them right so yeah okay okay thank you yeah sorry just to add na, swami b uh, gives another example of the eyes seeing the hand so uh, you know your eyes is seeing the hand but however there is a third entity which is the light so as long as you are seeing the hand using the light so the light exists but once you cease to see your hand, uh, for you, the light doesn't exist. But life, the, the light is still there. No? So as long as you are seeing, it exists. But once you cease to uh, see it, it doesn't exist in that. But it is always there. The light is always there. So this is one example Swami P keeps quoting between the seeing the hand with the light, which is in the background. Though the light is not involved in any of this process, seeing and the hand, but it is always existing, which is like the Brahman or the Atma. That is one more, uh, you know, example which you can dwell into to find out what exactly is the Brahman. It it helps to sustain you, but it is not within you, but it is always there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Ramjini? Can you guys hear me okay? A little bit garbage, but uh, I think we can, we can probably hear you. Can you hear me okay now? Much better. Okay, one, one. Maybe you can go on, uh, Rajesh, to the next person. I'm trying. Hey, to no, no, no. We are able to hear you. Here. Now, hear you. Go ahead. Yeah, now it's clear. She logged off. Rick, go ahead. Rick, uh, maybe I just want to put this in terms of mithya and satyam, and I'm. Let me use gold, but all these examples are the same. Uh, the gold chain, there is is totally dependent upon the gold. There is no chain apart from their gold. 
There is no mitya apart from satyam. But satyam is independent of the goal, of the chain rather. There is no chain in the goal. Satyam is never defined, never confined. And of course, just one other portion of this, the weight of the pot, the weight of the chain, the shine of the chain is all gold. There is no chain. So there is no chain in the gold. There's only satyam. There's no gold also. <laughs> yes, if you want to. Uh, it's just an example. Yeah. Good one, Rick. Yeah. Mukum. Hey, I'm back. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Ranjali. Oh, sorry. sorry about that. I was going to say that um, actually I like the example in the uh, book that uh, they gave about the electric post and the ghost uh, vision out of that. Um, because, you know, when he says all beings exist in me, but uh, I don't dwell in them, um, then he talks about the ghost vision can only come from the post. So the post would say that the ghost vision is coming from me. So it's technically in me, but I'm not the ghost. So I'm not dwelling in them and I'm not the one really frightening anybody. You know, so that's that's the way. And then when he says, nor do things exist in me, then the then the post would say that I'm the post, but the ghost has never really existed in me. So that's the other way of saying it. So I love that example because that kind of helped me understand this concept a little bit better. Very well summarized, Benjamin. Uh, Thank you so much for that. I also like that example, actually. So what happens is that, you know, over a period of time, when you step away from this chapter nine and do something else, You'll come back, you'll forget about the post of the ghost completely <laughs> and the relationship. <laughs> All right, Muku. Uh, thanks, Rajesh. Uh, I think one was around, uh, you know, the, the the two types of, you know, Vishishta Advaita and Advaita, just a comment there, right? So you, I, I think my, my understanding um, based on what my guru spoke is that they're all based on the mindset of the disciple, right? Uh, it's it's the ultimate truth, whether somebody experiences um, enlightenment through the Vishishta Advaita path or Advaita path, once they completely experience the truth, it's the same. But some people who are more on the heart are will get pulled into that uh, Vishishta Advaita path. Uh, because you know you, that that you know that the idea, you know, they, their biggest thought current they believe or easy to believe is. You know, there is some more powerful force and I can merge with it, right? That's some that's the that's a thought current there idea they resonate with some beings. Some beings resonate with the idea that you know I am I am the God, right? Or the, or the ultimate. But I think the end state is always once experienced through that whatever journey it is, right? The truth is always the same. It just is expressed in a way different minds or, uh, or beings will resonate. And that's where the gurus come in those different waves so that nobody's left behind uh, from reaching this goal. You know, that's that's re that's really kind of one one perspective, uh, which is really important. I mean, I really, it was a big, big understanding. Otherwise, a lot of times people debate on these different paths, uh, but I think they're all meant for an audience. When a guru speaks, he speaks to a mindset of people in the planet Earth. And then, uh, and you know, there are enough people of all the mindsets. 
and you know that's why different people resonate with different ideas but once you experience once you like you know the way he explained my guru explained was it's like you know somebody summits mount everest from south right so let's say it's cold so he sees always snow somebody summits mount everest from north which is lot of you know um, more greenery and and water right so they explain the journey through the way the summit but once they the summit they look all around they this the experience they have from the summit is one and the same uh, so in a very beautiful very humorously he said you know there is apparently in, in this is a big debate right in 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 lot of the sanatan hindu dharma culture this this is all this lot of pundits debate this so like a classic example very humorously said was somebody was trying to provoke a debate yeah with a book in a bookstore right like what is the difference between this uh, shankara's advaita and you know uh, ramanuja's there are two books so he was trying to provoke a debate and then the book the bookkeeper said it's 2 dollars sir <laughs> so you know so he, he said that's exactly the difference <laughs> so don't spend time on it was this kind of a message right just focus on getting to the summit and uh, once you get there you will see everything reconciles and everything else there's no there's no there's nothing which is different once you reach the summit explain the summit So that, that's that's okay, I was going to say the same thing, um, but but uh, you eloquently said that you know not uh, it's not important to dwell on the differences, but actual the final goal is what we need to dwell on. How are we going to get there? Yeah. yeah. Excellent, excellent, Moko. Okay, so one of Gunz, you raised your hand. Uh, go ahead. After that, I'll go. Hey uh can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Um I'm just on the road so uh, I'm just listening in. Um so just bear with me a little bit. Um quick comment I wanted to make was uh, this is very similar to um I think it's in chapter 4 uh, if Sridhar or uh, Alpana they, you might know the numbers. <laughs> or anybody else but uh, this is very similar to see action in inaction and inaction in action which means you for each phrase there you have to look at it from different angles that's the way i perceive this so when when he says i am in everything but i am not in everything but everything is in me so if we um step back a little bit and say who is actually talking about this so for example when he says see action in inaction that means he is referring to everything that is uh, uh you know related to body mind bmi and all that and then inaction in action meaning uh, how you do your you know how you go about your things but what your act what you actually are uh this seems quite similar to that and there's a lot of phrases like this that keep coming and going i just wanted to uh, point out uh, it's it's just a the way i'm i'm trying to reconcile these things that's all thanks thank you gurus thanks for that yeah that was a good one so okay. the... just one thing and the story is that uh, uh ganvyasa was writing mahabharat then uh, his scribe was ganpati tomorrow is ganesh chaturthi by the way so the the um, he, he had put a condition that i will write 
as long as you talk, but you cannot stop uh, talking. Um, otherwise, I'll stop midway. And uh, Vyasa yeah. said, I accept your condition, but you have to accept my condition. You cannot write it unless you understand it. So that's why he yeah. added paradoxical statements because Ganpati had to stop and think a little bit. And during that time, Vyasa would uh, yeah. construct, you know, next whatever number. So yeah, yes, that's pretty cool. Statements. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. No, I, I was about to say that. I don't know. Uh, I was about to say that because I was listening to Swami P. It is called Grantha Mantra. So what Swami P says. So for example, the owl human being uh, example, which is available in chapter 2. And uh, you know, there is something in chapter 4, chapter 9, and he calls it the Grantha Slokas. Or in other words, he called, calls it the naughty verses. So you, he uses both, you know, the naughty, which is the not, and the naughty, you know, which is uh, you know very naughty by uh, Vyasa, who made these verses. So nice, Alpana. In fact, I was about to say this, you told this. So I think uh, I'm a little excited now that we want to say the same thing. And uh, since Ganapati Puja is tomorrow, I think it is very relevant today also. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Okay, so just uh, changing the tag, uh, in our track where we where we are on, um, uh, the other uh, observation that I had when I was reading this chapter, and I don't know if uh, if if you uh, if you were able to uh, you know catch this as well, uh, was that at this stage when we start getting to Gita, right? I think unless and until we have a, a, a conviction, a strong conviction that uh, the scriptures are proof, a method of proof of Brahman, I don't think that anything else beyond this stage from chapter 9 will get into our heads. So that was the conviction that I sort of uh, picked from, from the thread, what uh, the chapter 9 introduction says, right? Because it, it talks about, you know, uh, what is a religion? It talks about the right action. Religion religion is, if, if it were the right action, then Vedanta is no religion at all. And at that point of time, I think, you know, the differentiation between what is the philosophy and religion goes off there because religion is only like what Muku said is the path, what you would take. But the philosophy is what's the final thing, you know, what exists and what, what is real, what is not real. That's what it says. So then then the whole, whole, whole idea is that uh, uh, you kind of start becoming less, quote unquote, uh, religion, religionistic or ritualistic or whatever that you can call it, because either you would find a lot of meaning within that and then you would continue doing it, or you would say it, it really doesn't matter, then because ultimate truth is different and it, it can be achieved in multiple paths. So that is the one big thing. And, and more importantly, we also start acknowledging the fact that the, the, the normal methods of quote-unquote proof that we would have, which is the, uh, the, uh, the five senses, or even the indirect perception, we would acknowledge that there is there can be likelihood of errors in them. But then we will also have to start building that conviction that there are no errors in the proof, method of proof, what the scriptures say about what Brahman is. Because unless until one understands what the scripture says, it's impossible for us to understand the existence of, I will not call existence of Brahman, the existence. So I think that that's a switch we need to make at this stage in, in our Gita study. Understood. Understood, Agesh. 
Ajay? Yeah, no, I, I, I just wanted to, you know, good point, uh, Rajesh, that you make, but I, I wanted to kind of flip back to Shlokas 1 and 2. And I thought both of them were sort of Krishna's uh, summary in a way, or his hard sell, or however you want to put it. I mean, the way he reinforces his point around uh, Nirguna Brahman in the first two shlokas was something really caught my attention. And some of the words that he's used, and I know we discussed it briefly in in our in our Gita group. I mean, one of them was around Anasuya, uh, and uh, I mean it. It says, uh, I mean, the, the the meaning that's given in the shloka is slightly sort of oh. different. It says it's uh, non-envious, but yeah. fundamentally, the word asuya is really to say that you have a doubting nature, right? And therefore, he actually says to Arjuna that I am telling you all this because you are anasuya because you have faith in in me and the scriptures and everything else, right? So I think that, again, goes back to the bigger conversation around who, you know, who should we engage with. I think having that anasuya is is super important. And uh, there's, a, there's a lovely definition that Swami P gives of the word asuya. And in Sanskrit, he calls it paraguneshu dosha avishkaranam. So dosha, dosha avishkaranam is finding or manufacturing errors uh which is a attitude which doesn't work when you when you focus on these scriptures so i think that's that's something which really caught my attention and i thought that was a beautiful word and 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 then in 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 in, in shloka 2 he talks about some really sort of hard hitting words uh he talks about pavitram the fact that it is pure i mean he's the, the, some of these words are just just very sort of precise. It's pavitram, it's uttamam, it's the highest uh, knowledge. It is pratyaksha, it can be percepted directly, or it's directly perceptible. It is avaganam, avagamanam, which is it's realizable directly here and now. Dharmam in a slightly different way, but it is it is virtuous, it is the right thing, right? And then this was really nice, he said, calls it susukham, he says it's easy as much as we find this difficult as a concept to understand. He calls it susukham as in easy to practice. And of course, it's everlasting or avyayam. So I think the, the words that Krishna has used, Bhagavan has used is just so fabulous that I was like just blown away by these two, these two shlokas. And just one last point on in, in shloka one, he uses the word, I mean, the, the chapter is called Rajavidya Rajaguyam, but he uses the word in the first line, he calls it Guyatamam, which is the most secret or the most sort of, I mean, obviously at, the, at, the, at, a, at a higher level of, you know, secret. So it's like the third sort of level, right? So I think the way Krishna describes the first two shlokas is just fabulous. And it kind of really sets the pace for this chapter. I mean, I was blown away. Yeah, and and I think you've been well said. And Muku, before I uh, you know I request you to unmute yourself, just want to add this. And this is where I think you know uh, you know I'm making this observation, right? In language, uh, what we have as such is inadequate, and especially when it comes to quote unquote language like English, 
you know, if somebody says pure for Pavitram, how can you actually translate Pavitram as pure? Impossible. Right. Impossible. It's, you know, yeah, you, you can get a sense of it. But then, you know, going back to the debate that we were having in the group, you know, if you were to translate ritual back into English, from English to Sanskrit or whatever, it is not uh, what you think it is. Because somebody did a quote-unquote a terrible act of uh, translating long back, some 200, 300 years back. And we are all products of the particular generation, unfortunately. We have to get rid of it. If we really need to understand the intentions behind, we have to understand the uh, the words in their truest sense. I'm not saying English, you should not use English. I'm saying the fallacy of using a word-to-word literal translation, you know, Pavitra means pure and uh, Uttamam means the foremost. That's not how we have to read this and understand this. That's my only submission here. No, totally, totally agree. In fact, uh, you know, Alpna, I have actually ordered the Hindi version of Swami C's book for that reason, because I've now started to really read in Hindi. My my pronunciation is terrible, but uh, I I know that the meaning that you can get from the Hindi word is is yeah. just unmatched and not translatable. Don't worry, I totally Ajay. agree. We'll Ajay. fix the pronunciation <laughs> too soon. Yeah, we're getting into the Gita chanting later on. I yeah. just wanted to add one more thing, Ajay, what you said about, uh, you know, one and two um, is that, you know, how this is the kind of guru anybody would want, like how Krishna had described, like, okay. these are the things. So such a beautiful way of accepting. So if I had a guru like him, <laughs> that would be the best, right? Exactly. So that's, that's the kind of... Uh, exactly. I mean, the thought I had was very similar with you, which is this is the, the, how a good teacher is gives yeah. you a nice preface so that you know you are totally hooked right? right it's beautiful yeah so just one other thing to say on anusuya but muku you go first okay so i think um i mean i was also my my aha was again uh one and two very along the lines what uh both of i think both of you talked about and i think it for me um you know, in just a background, you know, I did not read scriptures before I met my guru. So I met my guru and then, and now I'm kind of reading the scriptures, right? So um, I was so blessed to have a guru who just taught exactly this way, right? Because the, the words that like really kind of caught me was Raja Vidya. I mean, very first, I mean, very early meeting of him, he always used the word Raja Vidya, Raja Guhyam, right? And mm-hmm. he, he constantly used this word. And the other word, I think, which was this pratyaksha, pratyaksha, right? By his own personal experience. So when he taught us, it was a command of total understanding and experience. So it was never, um, never there was an uncertainty around the possibility or a way to give us the possibility or show us the path. Uh, I think with the way you were saying, I mean, when I read these two slokas, I just had such a gratitude that I met a, met a, a Sadhguru who has established in this space and exactly taught us this way. Uh, so I, I can I can understand, you know, uh, when you said I really would like the Guru. Yesterday when I read this uh, slokas, I was just so much in gratitude that Cosmos gave me a Guru who was, I mean, really first way, he never taught about scriptures. He said, Rajavidya, I'm going to give you the Rajavidya, Rajaguhyam. The other word that jumped out was Bhijnanam. Right, not it's not very commonly used, you know, path of knowledge. But Vijnanam is somebody who's experienced, and I'm going. I'm just going to give you the technique to get to there. Uh, so I, I was just, just filled with gratitude on, on how the cosmos blessed me, 
to have met a guru and learned under a guru like this. Uh, that's exactly how I felt on the, when I read 9-1 and 9-2. Uh, just, just feel very blessed. That's it. Thanks, Mokko. Srini? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> just to, uh, you know, go, uh, go with the thoughts, uh, in fact, uh, you know, my uh, thinking process was in chapter four, you know, he subtly introduces God. You know, he says there is something called God, you know, uh, and uh, I am the avatara purusha. You are different. I am different. So he introduces God. The 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 God or Ishwara is introduced in chapter four. Chapter seven equally connected with the chapter four, where uh, you know he talks about the creation of the God. He talks about the para prakriti and uh, apara prakriti. So he says, who really this God is? The entire creation, the Stiti, uh, the Srishti, Stiti and Laya is by God. And also he touches the Vibhuti of the God, saying that, you know, I am the I am the smell in the rose, I am the water which flows in the river. And chapter 9 is really an eye-opener uh, for Arjuna and as well as for all of us. He says, everything around is God. You know, it is not that, you know, God is somewhere, uh, you know, outside. Wherever you see is God, you know, like, it is chapter which actually, you know, uh, opens the entire eye of uh, Krishna and, of course, me also, that, uh, you know, whatever you see should be God. It cannot be anything other than God. So the way he has brought this uh, uh, in the Gita, in fact, is my uh, aha moment where he says, uh, he, he touches God first and then he says, God is the creator of everything and everything you see around is God. And he doesn't stop with that. The next two chapters is also totally on God. The Vibhuti is also total praises on God. The mountain is God. Uh, you know, the, the the Vedas are God. Everything is God. And again, in chapter 11 also, the Vishwarupa chapter is also telling mostly about God. He says uh, the good and bad things about God also comes in chapter 11. So up to chapter 10, the only good things of God is there. And in the chapter 11, he also starts uh, speaking about the bad things of God. So, so this is what is, you know, caught my uh, attention. And I think in chapter 9, one uh, critical thing, I'm not very, uh, you know, uh, used to the Sanskrit words. But one thing which I understood is, he, he starts this Raja Vidya to, uh, to Arjuna once, once he has elevated him to a certain level. He says, now that now that you are very mature, uh, you know, now that you have understood that uh, you know uh, uh, there should be no grudge against people, your your knowledge, your levels have increased. So now I'm going to give you the biggest secret. So I think there there is a message, which means that we also should understand that we should elevate ourselves to that level to be able to grasp chapter nine to the to the maximum extent possible. So I think being the middle uh, means nine is almost the middle of the Bhagavad Gita. I think that is where uh, you know the the actual flight happens. Up to nine, you are doing your uh, you know shravanam. Then you know slowly you get to your mananam. And after fifteenth or sixteenth chapter, you should uh, start your niditasanam. I mean that is where we try to link the, all the three. So a pure thought process which came instantaneously. And uh, thank you for the. Uh, opportunity. Thanks. Thank you, Srini. Ajay? Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to uh, just, just uh, there was an interesting thing that I read about uh, Anusuya. Anusuya was the wife of Atri, who is one of the Saptarishis, I believe. And uh, Atri apparently means who transcends the three gunas, Sattva, Rajas, and, 
and tamas and also somebody who transcends the three uh, shariras which is thula sukshma and karana and he is paired with anusuya which really means somebody who has an open mind and who is who has sort of faith in the who has faith and is not of a doubting nature so there is a there's a very nice symbolism around atri and anusuya uh, which sort of was very interesting yeah and traditionally the five uh, most pavitra uh, stri uh, she is one of them so tara uh, anusuya so the story is that actually brahma vishnu mahesh they came to test her and uh, they came as uh, to anusuya that how how uh, pavitra she is so they came to test and they said we want milk and then so she tried to get the milk and she said no we want your milk and these three adults were there so immediately with her this thing she converts them into into three little babies and she feeds them milk so those three babies then became joined and became datatre datatre correct yes that story okay. i've heard that's beautiful again yeah mm -hmm. so that's the story of anusuya it's a beautiful name yeah Anybody else? Just to add on to Srini, actually, uh, a lot of people, they segregate Gita into three parts and say it is Tattvamasi. So the first six chapters are about Tvam. So where they tell about Atma, about a Jiva. And then the second six chapters, the second sextant is about Tat, about Ishwar. So you rightly, you know, uh, said that these are related to the Ishwara. And then the Nididhyasan starts from the 13th chapter itself, where it is Asi, the uh, the identity between the Tat and Tvam. So that's also some people use. Some use Karmyog, Bhakti Yog, Gyan Yog, some use Tattvamasi. So there are different categorizations about these three sextants. Superb, yes. Ajay, you're on mute. Sorry, sorry. Um, I, I was saying that Jnana and Vijnana came in chapter 7, and it's kind of come again in the first and second shloka. And, uh, you know, one sort of thought that I had was that in that three steps of shlokas 4 and 5, I, I, I think of like 1 and 2 as Jnana, and then, you know, step 3, which is... Uh, there is only Brahman. Everyone all around is Brahman, is your sort of Vikyana stage. Again, this is just for my own sort of uh, understanding, or this is how I kind of understand it, but that's one way to think about it. Because the gross body of Ishwara is whatever we see, the entire thing is his body. So, uh, there's no body, but I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> And Swamiji also mentions, you know, when he starts off on chapter 9, he says that whatever is mentioned in chapter 8 is so very difficult, right, uh, to 
to to practice to put it to practice right it's so very difficult um, and uh, krishna also says that or his interpretation is you know arjuna is much more qualified than to settle for you know uh, the uh, the krama mukti right uh, and uh, he should go for jivan mukti and that is that is what you know he starts off in chapter 9 so i thought that was a beautiful way to introduce chapter 9 uh, and uh, you know motivate people to get into uh, the vedanta part of it i mean i noticed uh, uh, you know uh, they that same comment from swami p and you know my first instinct when i heard that was it was very counterintuitive i almost felt like doing krama mukti might be easier if you if you know because we live in this material world right and we think that you know we can kind of figure out a way to remember god at death and do whatever it takes to get the you know shumna nadi and the you know yeah. whatever you know whatever the practice is but when you when the way he explained it you realize how it is very difficult because we can't kind of even cross our legs and sit when we are all nice and healthy i i doubt we'll be able to do any of that when we die and then he yeah. says that in any case even then you still need to attend classes in brahmaloka yeah. right so it's not like <laughs> it's not like the end of it right so so clearly uh, that is like not that's a second that's a second best option yeah or another yeah uday later later if you see na in chapter 9 he also uh, you know speaks about bhakti and then from uh, sagama bhakti to nishkama bhakti i think he he sets the platform right because uh, you know we all know that we all have been doing only sagama bhakti we all we all wanted something for us but he very clearly says you know nishkama bhakti is the path forward so you should you should you know try to do this nishkama bhakti i think this is where he sets the platform eight, that right should... uh, uh, that was chapter 8 wasn't it where he talks no, about chapter 9 chapter 9 yeah. also yeah he he spoke you know he he speaks about the promise you know the god is giving the promise that if you really come to me i will definitely help you but what you need is you need to decide whether you need me or or you need what you want so so that is where you know that is where the shift happens and and i think i think we will do it further but uh, what really hit me was this sagama bhakti and nishkama bhakti in the sagama bhakti you need to do all the rituals to the books what is there in the shastras you need to practice perfectly you know to get the result but nishkama bhakti is totally different you can even have whatever little you have with you and do your bhakti and you know you should always try to only attain god so i think we will be doing this maybe in the in the weeks to come i think uh, this is again a aha moment for me again why i am saying is chapter 9 is the transformation chapter where you really you know become from one level of uh, you know uh, nyani to a different level of nyani and also you get the platform of bhakti uh, which was never explained in the first uh, six chapters so slowly he is also introducing you to bhakti which means that together with the nyanam and bhakti you can go to the third level which again like alpana said starts from chapter 13 i mean it's very uh, it's very beautifully uh, done uh, the geeta so that step by step you keep improving your uh, your your mind and your status thank you that was a good discussion thanks can, can i just make one one comment alpana i, I mean uh, sri mentioned nishkama bhakti and i have to thank this group for introducing me to intistuti 
and to me that is a you know the highest example of nishkam of bhakti you know when we go when we go to a temple or we go pray we are always always inevitably asking for something right yes we we never say give me what you please right and uh, so i mean to me if if i have to kind of think of kunti stuti which we which we discussed over a couple of weeks three weeks the one takeaway to me which is a huge aha moment is when she says give me give trouble. me trouble or pain or sorrow so i remember like then do bhakti and that bhakti is of a level that we cannot even comprehend so yeah i mean just just yes. excellent ajay excellent totally with you yes that transformation has to happen i mean yeah, no, that, that was eye opening i mean exactly again, yeah. uh, he is not on the call but you know that was one sort of uh, you know having discussed the kunti stuti it has gotten me started on bhagavatam so, exactly exactly multiple, multiple benefits from my point of view yes excellent excellent all right we'll say the closing prayer or anybody else om purnamada purnamedam purnat purnamudachyate purnasya purnamadaya purnamevavashishyate om shanti 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 hi om shri gurubhyo namaha thank you everyone and we'll thank do you. next five i was just skimming through it i think we can do next five shlokas in the next session okay. so nine, thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you all